Welcome to another special topic episode of the Olafens Weekly Wrap Up, a podcast by IHS Market. Today is Friday, November 19th. I am Hayabat Niji. Today we are joined by Susan Bell and Brian Stutter, Research and Analysis Directors for Downstream, and Dabnal Chowdhury, Executive Director for Downstream, to talk about the North America refining market. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, we we have a house party this time. Right? Yeah. This is one of the first times, Haya, that we've had multiple multiple experts uh, on the line. So this will be this will be interesting how it uh, it plays out. Yeah, thank you guys for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, before we get in the conversation, can you guys tell us a little bit about your background and what you do for IHS? Brian, why don't you start? Sure. So, uh, good, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, Brian Stetter, uh, Director of North America Refining here at IHS Market. Uh, I've been with the company for um, just shy of a year. Um, I previously, before that, came from ExxonMobil and uh, before that worked at Philips 66. And my career prior to all that actually did start at IHS. Uh, back, it wasn't called IHS Market back then, it was just IHS. And uh, that's actually was my first intro into uh, the refining and oil markets. So uh, anyway, that that was uh, just around 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I worked there as an analyst, uh, came and, and uh, worked through industry at, at different operating companies. And, and now I'm back. And uh, main area I cover, like I said, North America refining, mainly the product markets, uh, short term, long term, uh, gasoline, diesel, jet, and uh, the, the major transportation fuels. What do you do when you're not a superstar refining analyst, Brian. <laughs> well, a few things. Uh, you know, I became a father about a little over about a year and a half ago, and uh, so these days a lot of my time is spent, you know, either changing diapers or reading books to my <laughs> my one and a half year old, and uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. So that that's a that occupies now a very significant part of you know what was my former free time. So. Susan? All right. Well, thank you so much for having having me on this call. Um, I have been in the refining industry since 1993 when I graduated with a chemical engineering degree from the University of Alberta. I live in Calgary, which um, is in Canada. So I am the, the lone Canadian on this call. And uh, my focus throughout my career has been on um, refining analysis in terms of economics and project economics and crude oil optimization and finding markets for oil sands crudes. And uh, um, so that's that's where I've spent most of my career. I have come to IHS market through a bit of a circuitous path. Um, I worked in um, industry for a number of years and then um, came to one of our legacy companies, Pervin and Gertz, to work as a consultant back in 2001. And I worked there for a number of years and decided to go back to industry to, you know, develop my skill set a bit more. And uh, a number of years later, I had a bunch of children and took some time off to raise them when they were really young and decided it was time for me to get back into the workforce. And by that point in time, IHS Market had uh, acquired Permanent Gertz and uh, I reached out to a few of my colleagues that were still with the company and 
tried to see if there was a role for me. And uh, that was about uh, maybe four or five years ago. And I've been with the company ever since. No, that's great. I know from my previous stint at CMAI, we, we know some of the same people, Susan, so that's that's cool. So yeah, yeah. Well, what do you do for, for fun? I mean, I know you chased around uh, a bunch of kids for a while, but now what do you do for fun? So um, I, I really enjoy cycling. Um, I have a, a friend that I go cycling with. We try and get out at least twice a week, but uh, now that the weather's turned, we won't be able to do that. Um, I run. I uh, ski. Um, we have a cabin um, in central Alberta that we we go up to um, on the weekends, and we uh, we have a, a sea do. We're we're not, uh, you know, we we, we didn't want to invest in a, a boat, but we thought a sea do would do us just fine. So we play around on the water with the sea do, and uh, and we try to spend as much time with family and friends as possible, despite the pandemic. That's that's great. So last but not least, Devnell, tell us a little bit about yourself hey. and what you do. Hey, Carla, thanks for, for having me and allowing me to actually bring way more interesting people than myself uh, onto the call. My my colleagues, Brian and Susan, it would be pretty, pretty boring probably if it was just me uh, talking about refining on this call. But uh, anyways, I've uh, been with IHS for about 10 years. I've been in the industry for for close to 20 <laughs> lead the uh <clears throat> north and latin american um refining team here at ihs market um i started my career in the industry at, at kbr um working as a process engineer and uh doing detailed uh design and, and pnids and building ethylene crackers and refining units across the world um <clears throat> after that i got most of my commercial experience, understanding supply, demand, pricing, and economics at Valero. Um, and then I moved on to IHS almost uh, 10 years ago. I was employee number one after um, Pervin and Gertz and CMAI were acquired by the company. And if you kind of, if I think back in my career back then, I mean, I, a lot of the companies that I was subscribed to are now all part of uh ihs market and all the models are now connected and and uh it's been a a fun ride here um to get to where we are today as a company that's funny how you were employee number one with permanent girds after IHS. i was employee number one uh with cmai after they they uh got acquired by ihs so that's that's pretty fun <laughs> although i w i left and then came back so as you stayed the entire time Yep. yep, I've been here the whole time since all the acquisitions. Cool. So really quickly, what what do you do for fun? <clears throat> so uh, the last ten years, I was on a degree collecting um, journey, so I had no fun. Right, um, <laughs> I was getting a a master's in predictive analytics and data science when I first started IHS, and and then I decided to get an MBA and. And then, you know, I graduated, I finished my MBA in 2019 thinking that I would have, you know, a bunch of free time and party and, you know, go to all the places in Houston there to go out and travel. Oh, and, oh you had free time. All right. It's just not the way you thought. <laughs> yeah. And then, then the pandemic and, you know, during the last 10 years, I've gotten very fat too. So all the clients that 
probably knew me before IHS and then over the last 10 years probably noticed me getting very, very fat. And so I used the pandemic to also get into cycling like Susan. So was, uh, right before the pandemic, I visited Susan, Susan in, in, in Calgary to visit some clients and her and her husband tried to get me to go biking and it just was not going to happen back then. It was like 13 miles. It's way too far. But, you know, now I'm super into biking. I go two, three times a week on the MS-150 and, um, and it's kind of changed my, my life. Um, just being able to cycle and actually have time to do that. I'm very into my dog. Um, take him a lot of places, uh, volunteer on the side quite a bit at different organizations. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm into my dog as well, but for different reasons because the dog is now getting old and <laughs> she's getting ornery and you never think that a six pound beast would be so, uh, annoying but she is now i mean i love her but a six pound dog is not a dog (laughs) it's a rat (laughs) yorkie it's a yorkie Uh, i just i still call her a miserable beast but oh all right so let's get this party started so take us away thank you guys for the introduction we're so happy to have you here so jumping right in talking about refining and refineries. So a large percentage of propylene comes from refining. Can you tell us a little bit more about what goes on in the refinery? Sure, maybe I I can take this one to start with. Um, So refineries are, uh, they're optimized to to maximize revenue when uh, against a certain set of product prices. And refiners will choose crude oils and refinery operating conditions that make sense given the market prices that they expect to see. And uh, you're right that a lot of propylene is made in the refinery and it's made primarily in a unit called the fluid cat cracker, the the fluid catalytic cracker. We call them FCCs for short. And uh, what refiners do is they optimize the FCC operations given the market conditions, and the market conditions tend to be a bit seasonal. So FCCs are gasoline-making machines, and they also are um, volume generation machines. So in, in North America, we tend to look at our refinery balances from a volumetric perspective instead of a mass perspective. And so the units in a refinery that increase volume are tend to be quite valuable because you're actually increasing the amount of product you have to sell. And, and that's what FCCs do is they grow the volume of product you have to sell. And, uh, and FCCs also have the benefit of producing propylene as a side stream. And there's different things that you can do within the FCC to either increase or decrease the yield of propylene. Um, but by and large, those FCCs are run to make gasoline. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think that's, uh, that's interesting, Susan. So can you tell us a little bit about how the FCCs integrated uh, within the gasoline balance, because there's other units, right, within the refinery that make gasoline and, and it'll influence the behavior, right? Absolutely, yeah. And and so um, the FCC makes a grade of gasoline that is, um, you know, up 
pretty average to the, the, the qualities that are required for gasoline. There's another unit in the refinery called a naphtha reformer. And that takes uh, low-valued naphtha that has pretty poor qualities from um, the perspective of gasoline, and it converts it into high-quality gasoline, and that's uh, it's measured by its octane content. So when you fill up your car at the pump and you see that you're putting in um, 87 octane or 91 octane, that is a measure of the quality of the gasoline, and the higher that number is, in general, the higher the quality is and the more costly it is to make that gasoline. So reformers churn out high octane gasoline, but they have um, a yield loss across them. So they're not as, um, you know, they're, they're, they're generally not as economic to run as an FCC because of the yield loss. When you think about it in a, in a price environment where natural gas is really cheap, relative to crude oil on an energy basis, the reformer is taking crude oil and converting a portion of it into natural gas. And there's a, a value loss to do that. Um, and so what, what refiners in North America have been doing is generally trying to underrun their reformers to maximize yield by minimizing yield loss and then run their FCCs a little bit harder to get that volume gain and to make up the octane that they're not getting from the reformer. And then there are, uh, there's another unit that's very closely tied to the FCC, which is the alkylation unit. And it takes the propylenes and butylenes and converts it into high uh, quality alkylate, which is a high octane component as well. And uh, you need to run your FCCs at a certain rate to generate enough feed to keep that alkylation unit running. Um, and then there are a few other components within the gas uh, within the refinery that come directly off of the crude tower. So there's butane, and then there's also straight run gasoline um, uh, that you would blend into your gasoline pool, subject to seasonal quality constraints. And I mean, there's probably at least another dozen other units within the refinery that that can make gasoline components, but uh, the main ones are the FCC, the reformer, and the alkylation unit. No, that's, thanks, Susan. That's a pretty thorough overview of the, the gasoline production environment within the, the refinery. Uh, Brian, I think you wanted to jump in here. So tell us about the gasoline market in general and how, what, what's been going on there? I mean, obviously the pandemic has has really affected the market uh, initially, but now that pandemic is starting, we're starting to come out of it. It seems that uh, gasoline demand has improved, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Carlo, no, ab absolutely. So, you know, starting off, you're absolutely correct. We are coming out of a massive pandemic right now. The amount of demand destruction we saw on the gasoline side at the peak of that pandemic, uh, which was around March or April of 2020, we had demand destruction around 40, 50 percent uh, gasoline demand loss, basically at the peak of those months. And uh, when we look at the data from back then, we see that work from home levels were 
very, very high, nearly 40, 50%. Essentially, anybody in the U.S. who could have worked from home for their job uh, did during that period. Now, particularly over the last month or two, as issues around the Delta variant seems to have eased off a little bit and hospitalizations are declining, uh, new case counts of COVID-19 are declining again, we're seeing both gasoline demand and miles driven get very close to where they were uh, prior to the pandemic. We're really, we're only about roughly one or two percent away from those current levels right now. And uh, those stronger levels reflect uh, several things. It, it reflects overall reduced levels of work from home that we saw basically at the peak of the pandemic. Uh, it reflects to a certain degree higher amounts of leisure and recreational travel. And uh, that's happened in part because global jet demand has been weak. So people have needed an alternative uh, for vacation and leisure travel. And that alternative has been getting in your car and, uh, and driving somewhere. So you know, particularly over the summer, we saw most of the national parks were very, very high occupancy, basically close to capacity. And again, it just sort of reflects uh, recovery and uh, and mobility and uh, and gasoline demand in particular. So that's what we're seeing right now. You know, when we look through the end of the year and into 2022, uh, as COVID cases continue to decline, we think we're going to see gasoline demand basically be back on par with what we saw uh, before the pandemic started in 2019. De Devon, it sounded like you wanted to jump in before, so. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, kind of tying together what Brian and Susan just said, um, you know, you, you think of an FCC unit and, and we take feed and we can produce gasoline and and propylene and, and other uh, olefins as well, and then feedstocks or alkylate units to make more gasoline blend stocks. So during the pandemic, if you think about it, um, FCC economics were very weak because of, of weak gasoline demand and very low cracks. So, you know, the refiners are faced with, do we shut down our FCC units completely and or just, you know, run our refineries at lower utilization rates or do we go into olefin maximization mode, right? And then this topic is something that over the longer term will become bigger and bigger for the U.S. refining industry as gasoline demand um, starts to uh, decline because of the uh, increase of CAFE standards and um, and increase uh, EV penetration rates. Um, you know, another thing that, that I kind of thought of when I was looking at this specific question, you know, which initially was uh, on propylene from refining, different parts of the world define refineries as different things. So in the U.S. specifically, we, we call uh, petrochemical crackers petrochemical units, and, and they're considered separate from most refineries. Um, a lot of them are owned by different companies, and they might even sit on the uh, plot of, of an individual refinery. And so really you have to sometimes think about what is the definition of a refinery in the country you're in. In, in Asia, most of the, the uh, pet chem crackers, not the crackers, and, and some of the new ethane crackers that have been built over the years in PDH units actually are considered part of a refinery or a refinery complex. Um, and so I think that's an important distinction to think about. And if you think of um, the importance of refining for olefins production over the years, it's declined because of the shale boom and the massive amount of ethane that, 
that we have uh, discovered here in the right. United States and and the fact that um, so much uh, of the feedstock here in the U.S. I mean, naphtha is still king globally, but in the U.S. we have shifted over to ethane. That has implications on ethylene to propylene uh, ratios for production and and also um, the need for more on-purpose propylene production in, in the world. So the, the kind of the emergence of PDH units in, in Asia, right? So I think really we have to think about what is a refinery? Is it a is it a fuels producing complex, traditional transportation fuels? Which has traditionally been, right? I mean, that's which what it's traditionally been in the US, but once we go out to Asia, you know, in Europe, they, a lot of the countries and companies like to define refineries as both refineries and and uh, what we call as pet chem units here in the U.S. Yeah, so the whole concept of molecule management, right, uh, overseas, whereas here it's been traditionally more refining focused for transport fuels, right? Yeah. So that's, yeah, and I think this is actually going to be more, much more important in the future, and it will have implications on the olefins balances as refiners look towards energy transition and how they will transition their assets in that uh, new paradigm, right? So I think that's where uh, olefins in general seems to be uh, at least a high interest for uh, refiners here in North America. Yeah, and this is part of the reason why IHS has invested so much, uh, IHS market has invested so much time in a fuels to chemical study. Um, and, and it's really, you know, different parts of the world look at this pet chem refining integration differently, right? Some of them are looking at the, um, looking at it from a transportation fuels perspective some companies in the u.s are actually integrated and then others are just in the pet chem side of things and then you go move over to asia and it's a similar dynamic most there are integrated some are, are separated and um, so different companies will have different strategies on the question of olefins maximization mode versus gasoline maximization mode um, into the future yeah, we did an episode with Rick Castillo, who was managing that whole project, and that's episode 52 for those uh, listening here in the podcast. If you guys are interested and haven't listened to it, it's 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 a pretty fascinating episode. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, um, you know, when you look at what the trend has been over the past uh, decade or so, we've, we've generally seen... Um, you know, U.S. refiners moving a little bit away from gasoline production because um, gasoline demand is, is uh, you know, for the past decade or so hadn't been growing as much as diesel. And so we saw those U.S. refiners shifting their gasoline to diesel production ratios um, to, to sort of narrow the difference. They used to be uh, producing predominantly gasoline in the refineries, like more than 50% of the yield would be gasoline, but they've moved that to be more even uh, just because the demand for diesel has picked up so much relative to gasoline. And what what's happened then is that the uh, FCC um, throughput 
has actually fallen off relative to crude runs over time. So it's really interesting. It's sort of doubly interesting to see that the uh, refinery-grade propylene yields right now and refinery-grade propylene production is at an all-time high when um, when we're seeing that, you know, refining capacity and refinery um, crude runs are not at an all-time high, and certainly FCC throughput is not at an all-time high. Um, and so refiners have, in the past year or so, made a very conscious effort to shift their yield um, towards higher RGP production. Some of that may have been on purpose to take advantage of the chemicals market that wasn't nearly as impacted by the pandemic as the gasoline market, but some of it may have also been just um, the result of what the refiners were doing to optimize their, their refinery operations in the face of the pandemic. What we saw refiners do is, is cut crude runs fairly substantially um, and then um, because there was no demand for jet fuel, refiners had to figure out a way to uh, get rid of all of their surplus jet fuel. And because they were because they cut crude runs, they freed up a lot of spare capacity in their diesel hydrotreaters to be able to take those surplus jet molecules and turn them into diesel. Um, and, and But then they were still faced with, well, how do we make gasoline if we don't have the crude runs? to support um, the throughput through the, the FCCs. And so what they would have done is change their cut points all around on their crude units to maximize um, vacuum gas oil yield off of the crude units and, uh, and then operate their FCCs at fairly high severity to maximize the octane barrels coming out of the FCC so that they wouldn't have to run their reformers as hard, which then also maximizes gasoline yield. So it really was the pandemic that has sort of caused this phenomenon of high RGP yield in, in, in uh, the U.S. refining complex right now. Yeah, no, that's, uh, and in fact, when the AFPM statistics uh, came out, Susan, we men mentioned this in a pre-production uh, meeting that yeah, we couldn't even close our balances because the RGP production was so high. Uh, literally, I was uh, talking with our colleague, Joel Morales, who manages the polyolefins service. Um, I said, hey, your data's got to be wrong. We, we, we should have more uh, polypropylene production. He's like, no, your data should be wrong. Very juvenile. Like, no, it's your fault. No, your fault, right? So, um, so yeah. So I think with within our own balances, we had to take a look at that uh, propylene production from the AFPM, those, those statistics. And not that they were wrong. We just had to uh, make an assumption that a, a certain amount of that RGP actually didn't come to the chemicals market. It was produced, but it's sitting somewhere because storage didn't increase, right? And the right. inventories didn't increase. So it, yeah. it was very confounding to us, but it, it does make sense, right? The cheap BGO because of oversupply, got to get rid of it, right? Yep. Yeah. So kind of looking into the future, you know, does this trend continue? And I think the answer is, is is yes, and IHS's opinion is is that we do see, you know, FCC units in the U.S. and globally needing to go more into olefins maximization mode. How do you do that? ZSM5 catalyst, you make uh, adjustments to riser, 
uh, temperatures and, and, and residence time. And <clears throat> there is a lot of work happening though right now. And, and one thing that we should probably talk about on this topic specifically is GHG emissions. And the reason that that will become more and more important in the future is 25 to 40% of stationary emissions from a refinery comes from uh, FCC off gas from um, and from, from uh, an FCC unit. So this that is one thing that, you know, if there's ever an LCFS program uh, implemented nationally in the U.S., um, that, you know, there will be winners and losers based on if an FCC unit can tie into a CCS hub on the Gulf Coast or if, if they cannot. And, and that's something that we'll need to be watching over the next decade or so um, in terms of what FCC utilization rates could actually uh, turn out to be longer term. Yeah, because uh, the FCC is probably the biggest source of carbon emission in the refinery. Is that correct? Exactly. And, and there's different ways to resolve that issue. Um, one is to install an, an amine scrubber on the uh, FCC off gas part of the, the unit. And um, they do that in gas processing, right? I mean, exactly. Out in the field, yep. You collect the CO2 and, and uh, tie into a CO2 pipeline system that's you know yet to be built. None of these things are really uh, built in, in the U.S. Gulf Coast yet at this point. ExxonMobil has a project that they're looking at funding. There's a big coalition now to get these um, built. Uh, Valero is looking at similar technology for um, their ethanol plants in, in the Midwest, but um, it's still a market that's TBD because of legislation. But if we want to reduce the carbon footprint of FCC units, I mean, that's that's the way to go, the, the most capital effective way to go. Okay, so we already kind of touched base on this, but energy prices are high right now. Can you guys tell us why that is and how does it affect refiners, specifically natural gas? How about uh, Susan and Devnil? Um, I'll take a first pass and, and feel free to jump in and help me. So, you know, as Susan mentioned before, you know, particularly when it comes to the natural gas prices, you know, it's an important fuel source for refiners. But in addition to that, uh, the price of natural gas and how it relates to the price of gasoline and how it relates to the price of crude is also very important uh, at a refinery's operation. So, you know, as Susan mentioned earlier, you know, the reformer being a major producer of gasoline at the refinery. Um, but the way the reformer is part of the reforming process, as you increase severity, uh, you make less gasoline and you make more byproduct LPG and hydrogen. And so the result of that, of that decay in gasoline yield and in the expansion of the LPG and hydrogen yield, as the price difference between those two commodities is very, very wide, you have an expansion of the opportunity costs uh, to produce high octane gasoline. So the reason why that's important is in markets like Europe and Asia, where the price of natural gas has gone nearly parabolic. I think in uh, Europe, uh, the price of natural gas, you know, exceeds well over $25 per MMBTU. In Asia, it's also very similar. And if you look at those kind of on a similar basis to crude prices, that that's basically at parity with crude and uh, gasoline prices. And so, if you think about it, about that, that opportunity cost, that expansion of that opportunity 
opportunity cost doesn't really happen for those regions. So basically the byproduct natural gas that you're getting uh, instead is almost of equal value for raising the reformer severity. Now, that's not at all the case in the U.S. market because although natural gas prices have risen, uh, we're over $5 per MMBTU, uh, there's still a very large disparity between the price of crude and the price of gasoline and how those prices relate to natural gas. So there is still, you know, there is still a cost to the reformer for increasing severity. So that's the first thing I would say about the natural gas side and kind of what, how it's impacting refinery operations and how it's impacting gasoline in particular. You know, a few other factors about what's really driving energy prices as high as they are now that I think need to be mentioned is the fact that the crude market is the strongest it's been in almost 10 years, levels that we really haven't seen since 2014. And in addition to that, what we also see right now are very high RIN costs. Uh, so basically, the factor of these things of relatively stronger gasoline cracks as a result of prior rationalization closures that have happened in the U.S. and around the globe, very high crude prices, high natural gas prices, uh, but also very high uh, renewable compliance costs as well, all, all, all together combined are driving very high energy costs right now. Yeah, and that, Brian, that was a really good summary of, of, um, of how really things are getting impacted now. And, you know, when you, when you look at the question just on energy prices in general, if you, if you look at energy kind of separated into power demand versus oil demand, the power market has really taken off. So natural gas prices, coal prices, they have increased way higher than, than, than uh, even crude when you put them all in a chart together and look at them on an MMBTU basis. But um, you know, besides the reformer implications, there's four other implications specifically for refiners that you know we could call out here. And, and the first is a negative implication, and it would be the fact that variable costs are just higher for refiners. When you have higher gas prices, um, you have higher power prices, and that hurts the variable cost economics when you're looking at a, a, a gross net margin. Um, the next two are actually positive for Gulf Coast refiners specifically, and the first has to do with uh, with um, with the gasoline market. And if you think about the impacts of the shutdowns in Pad One in the Northeast U.S., um, the PES refinery shutting down, and also all the refineries that shut down during the last round of rationalization from 2010 to 2015, um, we're basically running at half of the capacity that we used to have in pad one we're running around 700,000 barrels a day today we used to run at you know 1.4 1.5 uh, prior to this uh, all these shutdowns that we've seen over the past 10 years so what does that mean it means that the east coast is much more reliant on the gulf coast via colonial and the kinder morgan um, southeast pipeline which used to be known as plantation and the biggest source now is also imports from europe and when you think about it, what this means is that the marginal barrel of supply into the U.S. now is the European market. So that all being said, when you have higher gas prices, natural gas prices in Europe, we need gasoline cracks that can overcome those gas prices to incentivize the production 
and the reformer economics to um to push the gasoline into pad one specifically right and so the u.s doesn't have to have the, as high of a crack to produce the gasoline and so kind of globally what this does it causes the gasoline crack to be higher than to where it it would have been prior to high gas price so it's a net positive for the u.s refining system and then the second positive impact is the other way when you're looking at diesel and when you have higher hydrogen prices um you have higher hydro cracking uh um uh, variable costs because of the cost of hydrogen so um even though we have higher diesel cracks um you need them to overcome the higher hydrogen costs to, to have some type of margin we actually saw hydro cracker margins go negative in october in europe and what all this means is that the last piece that hadn't really come back for the U.S. Gulf Coast diesel market were exports uh, to Europe specifically because Europe is a uh, diesel transportation light duty vehicle market and um, and we, we don't have uh, 100% VMT uh, recovery there yet due to the pandemic. So that's one other piece here where it might be a positive when we're going into 2020 uh to if the gas prices stay at this 25 dollar and mmb2 level i will say that over the past two weeks or so we've gone from 33 to 25 because of uh the russians um uh sending more more product into more gas into europe um but we'll, we'll see what what actually plays out here over the next six months and and uh i think finally um you know uh a more i'd say um neutral point is the fact that um the uh uh the gas prices again um are 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 the variable costs you know that 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 I mentioned earlier that you know those are are slightly higher in the US but and that is a line item that will impact um um some of the refiners here but um overall um we see prices falling you know as we get in the summertime and um and finally um you know depending on refiners that are vlsfo producers and not vlsfo producers the ones that um do produce vlsfo and and have advertised themselves as vlsfo producers might be taking a hit right now because of the higher hydrogen costs and desulfurization costs when when you're hydro treating um, um high sulfur fuels yeah, so for 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 our listeners that aren't conversed in the in the acronyms, uh, VLSO is very low sulfur fuel oil, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah. if I could add something else to that, I think you know the the other thing to to uh, remember about. Europe being the incremental supplier of gasoline to the U.S. and the U.S. having to support a gasoline price that makes it economic for Europe to manufacture that gasoline means that the U.S. is also exposed to Europe's, um, the EU's emission trading system in terms of uh, GHG compliance costs. And those compliance costs are now becoming noticeable um, with respect to refining margins. And uh, I mean, the EU ETS uh, trading credit has gone from about $30 a ton at the beginning of this year to over $60 a ton now. And, uh, and those refiners are faced with having to um, reduce their uh, 
their stationary emissions or buy credits to offset their stationary emissions that exceed the benchmark. And the benchmark increases in stringency every year. So those costs are starting to become noticeable and uh, and uh, it's showing up in the price of gasoline that's coming across the Atlantic to, to land in, in New York Harbor. Yeah, Susan, uh, one last thing uh, for Susan Devnell. I just wanted to kind of address this topic. Very, very obvious one that that I that I might have left out. But, you know, the most obvious also impact of the of these natural gas prices and how it affects refiners uh, that, that I don't think we've talked about yet is the fact that for many parts of the world, the, the U.S. isn't really one of them, but we do see this in Europe and we do see this in Asia where uh, there are competing petroleum products that compete for market share uh, with natural gas, mainly on the diesel into power gen, uh, as well as uh, resid into power gen as well. You know, as natural gas has gone gotten very strong in those regions, it has actually become more competitive uh, for those regions to switch to those other alternatives. Uh, just, just to, and, and the ultimate impact of that is more demand uh, for the refiners' products that they're going to sell, and ultimately support for those respective markets and crack spreads. Yeah, very multifaceted and interconnected uh, uh, transport fuel environment. Uh, the one thing that is very fascinating that you brought up, Debnol, is the the dependence of the East Coast on European imports. And I think that's very important because as we move towards energy transition, uh, it seems like, based on what Brian and, and Susan were saying, Deb, that uh, the European refining industry is much more exposed. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because, again, this goes back to refining pet chem integration. And if those refiners uh, are much more exposed because of carbon emissions and the pressure that the governments are putting them under, putting the refining, refiners under, um, they, they may be the first to shut down, right, uh, in, a, in a big way. Is that correct? Yeah. So if you look at our latest views of rationalization, um, right now we still say that we're still telling our, our clients that we believe there's about 4.3 million barrels a day of rationalization that's needed globally. Um, we were at 4.5 and now with the recent announcement of uh, Philip 66 Alliance coming down, we're now at 4.3. Um, we were not telling our clients that it was needed in North America. So Alliance was forced by Mother Nature to, to shut down. Um, and, and you know, that was a refinery that was, was borderline um, that maybe eventually over the next 10 to 15 years would have shut down, but, um, you know, due to, to economics, but it wasn't something that we had happening this, this year specifically. So things like that happening and the fact that the U.S. refining industry rationalized relatively quickly actually makes things slightly better for Europe, but we still see somewhere between one and, and 1.4 million barrels a day of, of shutdowns happening and needed in Europe. And um, typically when we have rationalization happen globally, the U.S. is, is typically the first mover because um, they're not looking at their competitiveness across the globe or 
um, they're looking at more of this is a we have a very large negative net margin right now and we when you need to we need to shut this asset down because of um you know we have to answer to shareholders so um and and also it is much easier to shut down a refinery in the us versus versus europe right so but we do see um some shutdowns coming in europe over the next three to four years uh as we come out of the pandemic and this isn't due just to demand and it's also due to there being uh, quite a bit of new capacity coming on in in the middle east and asia as well okay so let's discuss crude runs can you tell us a little bit about the current demand for jet fuel versus the pre-pandemic levels brian do you want to take a stab yeah no i i can take that one so uh, you know obviously jet demand was by far the most impacted of all the major refined products just just on the account of it's the most discretionary in, and at the peak of the pandemic, we had about around 70, 80% demand destruction. We've seen significant demand recovery since then, and particularly as you know, issues around the Delta variant have been resolved or starting to resolve, and hospitalizations are declining again, uh, we, we have seen significant recovery in jet demand. So today in the US, we're around 20% off of 2019 levels. And really that last tranche of jet demand of air travel that hasn't fully recovered yet is really just in that international as well as uh, uh, that component of business travel as well. Uh, The international piece, however, is already showing signs of improving very significantly uh, with the US finally uh, opening up to vaccinated travelers. Uh, That's taken place in November. And we already see in the data a rapid rise and bookings from Europe to US. So we feel very bullish about jet demand, at least on that front. The uh, component of business travel, we suspect that that still has a lot of room to go. And that's probably not going to get back to where it was prior the, to the pandemic for at least another few years. Now, in terms of how this impacts global crude runs, you know, this has been among the refinery space, the last layer of demand that's yet to get back to where it needed to be. And so the result of that is globally, refiners are still running below their optimal utilization levels. And it tends to be a little region specific, you know, US in certain regions and pads and pad two, pad three, for example, and pad one, they're running in the low to mid nineties. So they've largely recovered, but in other regions, you know, we haven't seen utilization really get back to globally the levels that we saw before the pandemic. And again, it's really just the fact that, you know, global jet demand is kind of that last layer uh, holding the whole global refining complex down. Awesome. Well, guys, this has been great. Um, it's probably one of our longer podcasts, but I think it's well worth it. It's especially with the interconnectedness uh, with the refining complex and the pet chem complex. So um, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Well, hopefully we can have you uh, on uh, again soon uh, just so we can get into these uh, topics much more uh much more into detail uh but this is a great overview for our our pet chem listeners uh about what's going on in refining thank you for having us yes absolutely don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on soundcloud spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a like or leave a review if you enjoy it Check out ihsmarket.com chemical for more information on subscribing to our services. 
And if you have questions or want us to cover something more specific, you can send us an email. Until next time.